0: Well, good morning. It's Wonderful to be with you all and agree with uh, what Max said, just already such a privilege to to gather together, to sing, to pray, and to now hear from God uh, in his word. And so I'm going to pray for us one more time and we'll get into this uh, rich passage together. Lord, thank you so much uh, for the privilege of Sunday mornings together as a church family. We pray that you would continue to Uh, Do the good work uh, that you are doing among us, even during this time. Pray that you would help me, help all of us uh, to know uh, your great love uh, for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we all know that responding with calm in the midst of situations that feel chaotic uh, can be very difficult. I've been reminded of this recently recently. Uh, because we are currently teaching our oldest daughter, Caroline, to drive. She has her permit. She's doing a very good job. Uh, And I have tried so hard when I'm in the passenger seat to be like really super calm and cool and collected. Uh, And there are times when I do okay with that. Uh, But overall, the consensus in the Rendell family is that I have a lot of work left to do. The other kids uh, notice me grabbing onto things when we approach turns. You know those things, the, the little handles that hang down? What are they for? That's what they're for. When you're teaching your kids to drive, it gives you some sense of stability. <laughs> you know, it's easy to to, to blurt out uh, when I don't think she's making the right choice. I, I really am trying to be calm and confident, but it just—it all feels a little bit unnatural. I, I, I knew this one when she was a little baby. I held her in my arms. Now she's driving me from place to place. It just... It feels, it feels very difficult, and so I will admit I've often uh, not been calm and confident. I've often been the opposite, you know, really jumpy and anxious, uh, but she has been very gracious. I think we will get there because I really do want to be there uh, for her in a calm and collected way. We're working on it. If you've been here for a few weeks, you know that we are working our way through a letter from a man named Paul who was facing many challenges to a church in a city called Philippi, and they were facing some challenges of their own. And Paul is looking to help them respond to these challenges, and part of this response we see in our passage today is calm and, and trust and confidence in the midst of what feels like chaos, and also unity and togetherness with one another as they deal with these things. This is a relatively short passage uh, that we're looking at today, but, but there is a lot here. And we'll see a few different things as we go through. First, we'll see how the Philippians are to relate to one another. Second, we'll see how they were to relate to those that opposed them. And then finally, we'll see how they were to relate to Paul and also to the Lord that they have in common. And of course, we'll think about how this letter to an ancient church in Philippi has so much to say to us Today, we do live in a time where the church does face opposition and where things can feel chaotic. And we live in a time when, when unity in the church feels increasingly difficult. And this passage will help us to see how God has worked throughout history and how He is still working now. Because in all of these challenges, there there is so much opportunity for the church to shine in a way that is beautiful and compelling. Paul is going to challenge his readers and he's going to do so in a way that gives them a vision of what their life together can look like by the grace of God. So we begin our passage in verse 27, which I will read again. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Our passage begins with that word only, which the way that Paul uses it here, it's a really strong word. Paul's saying, Look, there is one thing, one thing that is really important, and I want you to give attention to it. And that one thing, he says, is your conduct or manner of life, as it is translated here. Paul tells them that it is really important that their lives be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, in many ways, this is kind of a loaded phrase, and we have to ask, what, what, what does Paul mean by it? Because if we're not careful, that, that word worthy can, can trip us up a little bit, because it, it can sound like, like Paul is telling them that they need to earn something, that their conduct would be the determining factor in whether or not God would love them. And that's important because that so often is the default position of our hearts, right? That that we need to to work, that we need to earn our way into God's favor. And and this is not what Paul is saying at all. So what is he saying? Well, it's helpful to think about the way that Paul is building his argument here throughout the beginning of this letter. One commentator put it this way, that that, that Paul has talked about the gospel in three different ways in chapter 1. Back in verse 7, he talked about defending the gospel. And then in verses 13 to 18, Paul talked about proclaiming the gospel. And now here in this section, he's doing something a little bit different. Paul is talking about adorning the gospel. He's asking, how can these Philippians live in a way that shows off how good the news of the gospel actually is? What kind of conduct We'll point each other and point people to the goodness of God and the goodness of his gospel. That is what Paul is getting at here. And Paul is also getting getting at something else that's interesting. He knows who he is talking to. You know, Paul's message did, did not change, but the way that he talked about it did because he knew different people needed to hear God's truth in different ways. And we see that throughout his letters. And so he tailors this instruction for the people in Philippi. The words that he uses here about conduct and, and manner of life, they, they had major overtones of, of what it looks like to be a citizen who lives in and represents a kingdom. And this would have really resonated with the Philippians because you might remember, Max has talked about this, that they were Roman citizens. And being part of Rome, what was a really big deal to life in Philippi. And so Paul is taking a concept that they are familiar with And he's applying it to what it means for them to follow Jesus. And their relationship with Rome was an important factor in the situation that they were in, which we're going to see in a little bit. So to this conduct that that, that they are called to, Paul says he desires for them to be living in this way, whether he is with them or not. I talked about one challenge in parenting right now. One of the things I'm enjoying about our present stage of parenting is is that Catherine and I have a little bit more flexibility. You know, when the kids were really little, we had to be present with them like all the time, right? And, that, and that's a great gift in many ways. Those, those are wonderful days. But it also means that you're constantly on call. You can't just wander off for a couple hours. But now <laughs> that the kids are a little bit older, we can start to do some things without making like hundreds of preparations in advance. So we can go out together. We can run an errand together. Just last night we went to the store together. It was great, it was so fun. Whatever it is, I know, it's a low bar. <laughs> should I take you out more? I should probably take you out more. If that's like a <laughs> Whatever it is, you know, we, we can know when we go out that generally speaking, uh, things will be going the same at the house whether we are there or not. And, that, and that's really nice and it's a sign of our kids growing maturity that we can feel pretty confident about that. And Paul knows that, that this is what maturity looks like for the Philippians as well. He wants them to, to mature to the point that, that whether he is present with them or not, he can feel confident that they are living in a way that is showing off the gospel. As Max reminded us last week, Paul, Paul wasn't positive whether, whether he would be with them or not. If he would be released from prison or if he would die. And elsewhere in his letters, Paul talks about his anxiety for his churches. Paul is concerned for them. He wants to be at rest knowing that the Philippian church is living out what they have been taught, and what they believe. So all of this kind of introduces and brings us back to that main question that we asked, what is this conduct specifically that Paul is so concerned about? What is it that he especially wants to hear when he hears about the Philippian church? He wants to hear that they are united, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And with this Paul begins to address one of the things that he has heard about the Philippian church that that he's a little bit concerned about. He has heard that there are some divisions, which he will touch on later in the letter, and that people are at odds with one another. And this is a problem in and of itself, but especially given what Paul is going to get to in in this passage, that, that the Philippian church is facing opposition. That means they are going to need one another, and that now is not the time for division, but for unity. Paul wants them to stand firm, and he wants them to strive, meaning that there will be effort involved in this. This is not going to be easy. And he knows they will need each other, and he wants them to do it together. Now, we should note that, that when Paul talks about unity, he's not talking about unity just for the sake of unity, right? He tells them to contend together for the faith of the gospel. They are to be united in the gospel, doesn't mean that they're called to agree on every single issue or every single interpretation of God's word, but they are called to contend together for the faith of the gospel. And, and we believe that now. That that's why when people join our church, we, we ask them very important but also very basic questions about following Jesus, right? We ask people, all of you who are members have have affirmed these questions. Are you acknowledging your own sin? Are we acknowledging our own need of Jesus? Are we trusting in him alone for our life, both now and in eternity? Are we in reliance on the Holy Spirit, striving to follow Jesus? Are we going to pursue the peace and purity in the church? Are we going to support the church to the best of our ability? Very basic things, right? We don't ask people whether they agree with every single aspect of our theology. We don't ask them if they will promise to love every song and love every sermon. We don't ask that. We don't ask them if they agree with us about the most pressing societal issues are and how the church should respond because there's going to be diversity on that and other issues. Unity in the church done well is a robust unity that's grounded in the gospel but it's also not a rigid conformity that means everyone has to be on the same page all the time about everything. That's where true health and true beauty lies as we unify around those essential areas around the gospel and hold to our opinions graciously and loosely in those other areas and ironically it helps us to talk about those other areas really well because when those things are not ultimate but when the gospel is ultimate the temperature comes down a little bit when we discuss these things together and that's a good thing and it helps us to be unified. Now, when we talk about unity, it's it's good for us to take stock of a few things. To consider the the priorities set by Scripture, to consider our own proclivities and and at times weaknesses as Christians, and also to consider our cultural moment. As to the priority set by Scripture, unity is extremely high on the list. The the New Testament is, is dripping with calls for unity in the church. Jesus himself prayed for our unity In John 17, in what is known as his high priestly prayer, he prayed that we would be one just as he and the Father are one, so that the world would believe in Jesus. Paul's letters again and again continually call different churches to unity across all kinds of different lines, ethnic, culture, and so on. One Bible scholar says unity is the highest calling of the church. And you might not agree with that. That's fine. But we can all agree that it is certainly a high biblical priority. So, if that's the priority, we also consider the witness of the church. And and this is an area where the church has often struggled to demonstrate the goodness of God's truth. Churches often rupture and split. Churches are sometimes marked by infighting and politics. And that happens in local churches, it can happen at the national church, the denominational level. People become suspicious of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And it becomes really easy for us to, to fail to believe the best about. Other Christians and even question their motives and the church suffers as a result. And I think you know, that witness of the church is often is also set against the backdrop of our cultural moment, right? When, when, when anger and polarization are so much the norms of the day. TV commentators and internet commentators often tell us that we are the righteous ones and we need to be mad at all of our opponents. Look at the ads on TV right now for these elections, politicians belittling and dehumanizing their opponents, political violence becoming more acceptable in the eyes of many, an explosion and sometimes dangerous conspiracy theories often advocated in the name of Jesus. We live in a cultural moment full of suspicion and anger and division. But here's the thing, even as we see the ways we have fallen short and even as we see The context of our cultural moment, we recognize that God has graciously given us an opportunity to stand out for him in the midst of an angry and divided world. Against that backdrop of anger and division, the peace and the unity of the church will stand out in a compelling and beautiful way. The world will know that we follow Jesus because of our love for one another and our unity together around the gospel. It was true in Philippi, and it's true now. And this unity is especially important for the Philippians, given what they were dealing with, as we continue to see in verse 28. Verse 28 continues, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. We learn from this passage that the Philippians have opponents, and we don't necessarily know a ton about their opponents, but as Max pointed out last week, there would have been plenty of pressure in a heavily Roman city like Philippi to give the proper allegiance to Rome, and even at times the proper worship to the Roman emperor. They may have had to choose at times between their nation and their God, and if they chose wrongly in the eyes of those around them, they could have suffered persecution. And that's a theme that that very much continues today today. In some places, and, and we talked about this, and, and, and Jamie and Jackie gave the, the update, and Max prayed for churches around the world. It's so true. In some places, you just you can't do it. You can't worship Jesus. And then there's other places where, where it's kind of okay, but, but it better not interfere with your allegiance to the country. And if it does, then it's a problem because the nation is ultimate. The love of a nation can and many times does come into conflict with the love of God. So the Philippians are dealing with this. They are facing opposition. How should they react to this opposition? They are not to be frightened in anything by their opponents. Now that word for frightened there is really interesting. It's a rare one. It's not used, uh, I don't think it's used anywhere else in the New Testament. They are not to be frightened, meaning, as one scholar pointed out, this word relates to the uncontrollable stampede of startled horses. Now that's quite a picture, (laughs) I'm not around horses much, but I will tell you that one of my least favorite things is being around a startled animal. They're panicked. You don't know what they're going to do next. It's it's not a good scene. It just pushes all my buttons. I don't like it. And that's what Paul is telling the Philippians. He's saying, don't act like a startled animal when you face opposition. That feels like a really low bar, but if we're honest, we know it's very easy to, to get scared and to get frightened in the world that we live in. It's, it's easy to, to be afraid when we look around and we see so much change. It's easy to be scared when, when foundational things that, that maybe we took for granted all of our lives don't seem to be accepted anymore. It's really difficult. But the fear that can result in these situations, that, that can also be really harmful to us and harmful to the church. In fact, there's very much a direct tie-in to the unity that Paul called the Philippians to. It's not easy to be unified When there's a spirit of fear and a spirit of anxiety. Because that anxiety and fear can lead to the kind of jumpiness and and panic and suspicion that produces division. It can lead us to feeling that things are out of control. And that might make it more tempting for us to go after those that we don't see eye to eye with on everything. But again, Jesus holds out a much better way. And it's a, a way that we see in the Bible and we also see in much of church history. The way of calmly trusting in the Lord confidently. In moments of chaos. We think of Jesus himself when he was in the boat and a storm raged outside and he was sound asleep. All his disciples panicked and they woke him up and he stilled the storm. Not anxious, not panicked, he was in complete control. Unlike Jesus, we are not in complete control. It makes it feel difficult at times but we know the one who is. And this is reflected elsewhere in the Bible and elsewhere in church history. Think about Paul. Think about the beginning of the Philippian church, Acts 16. He's in jail in Philippi, which is chaotic enough, right? And now there's an earthquake, and all the locks are broken, and and, everything is going crazy, and and the jailer is there, and he's ready to take his own life because he's assuming that the prisoners are gone, and there's Paul, the calm voice in the midst of the chaos. Caring for the one who has kept him in jail. And telling him, don't worry, we are all here. And the jailer comes to believe in Jesus. One of the best stories in church history, I think Max and I have both mentioned it before, is that of Polycarp, an old man who lived about 100 years after Paul did. Even though he was very old, he was persecuted by the Roman government. And when his captors came for him, he did two things. Number one, he asked for permission to go pray. And number two, he made sure that his captors had food to eat. Not panicking, not lashing out at those who oppose him, but calmly trusting in the Lord to take care of him. And the stories go on and on. Early church history under hostile Roman domination. We think of the majority black church in America in the midst of slavery and Jim Crow. The persecuted church today around the world that we try to pray for almost every week. Responding to chaos not with fear, but with a calm trust in the Lord who controls all things, even the chaos. This is the beautiful way that Jesus calls us to pursue. One author calls this, the call, the, the, this opportunity the calling of the non-anxious presence. I love that phrase. Can we live with confidence in the Lord in a cultural moment marked not just by anger and division, but by fear? And this is what Paul is pointing to for the Philippians, and he says something interesting here about the effects of living in this way. He says, living in this way is a clear sign to their opponents that they will be destroyed, but that the Christians will be saved. What does Paul mean here? Well, when the Philippian Christians confidently, humbly, and cheerfully face opposition, it helps them As they see one another do this, it helps them to be assured that Jesus has indeed saved them because he is changing them by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why there's peace. That's why there's unity. That confidence is a sign of God's work among them. And it increases their confidence that they belong to him. And whether they recognize it or not, it is also evidence to everyone that their opponents will not have the victory. Their confidence in in the midst of opposition gives the world an alternate script to look to, and it's a script that points to the truth that these Christians, these believers, these ones who are beloved by the Lord, will endure forever as God's people. And those who are powerful now, who oppose God's people, will ultimately be destroyed. Because God is the one who is in charge, and God has given salvation to those he loves. And Paul expands on that theme of God's gifting in our last couple of verses, in verses 29 and 30. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Now, as Paul has said, the Christians in Philippi are facing opposition, and this opposition has certainly made life difficult for them to the point where they are suffering. And Paul because he loves them, wants to help them understand this. One commentator noted how how easy it is when we are suffering to feel like we are suffering because we've done something wrong. And, And yes, sometimes we do suffer because of our own sin. We suffer because of our own lack of wisdom. But there are also times when this is not the case. And Paul wants them to know exactly why they are suffering so they can see it for what it is. You'll notice here that this suffering is not something that just randomly happened to them. Paul says this suffering has been granted to them. The suffering that the Philippians are enduring is a result not of their own failings, but as a result of the generosity of God. Just as God has given them the gift of faith to believe in Jesus, he has also given them the gift of suffering for his sake. There are plenty of gifts that God gives us that are really difficult to make sense of in this life. There are many difficult things he, he, he brings our way where it is, really hard to make sense of how this can come from the generous hand of a good God. Now, I do think this passage helps us to see some of the good that is coming about through the Philippians' suffering. And, and Jackie, the story you told about the woman who was able to thank God for her cancer because otherwise she never would have come to know the Lord, that, that's certainly a great example of this. But, of course, we also acknowledge that this is not always the case. And you may be here today, and you might be suffering in a way where it's very, very difficult for you to see the good in it. One author called these the the, the inconsolable things, the things that are just so difficult to to see how God is moving. But I also want you to hear from someone else. I want you to hear from C.S. Lewis. He said, of this difficult form of suffering, some mortals say of some temporal suffering, suffering in this world, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. He's saying that, that, that all of the suffering we endure now, and I think especially the suffering we endure in the name of following Jesus, that we will see in eternity how God is turning that suffering into a glory, and it will be beautiful. And so in the meantime, when God allows us to catch a glimpse of the good that comes from suffering, we can know that it is just a glimpse of what is surely to come. And we have a couple of those glimpses in this passage. Because first, we've already seen that that the Philippian Christians suffering in a calm, united, non-panicked, non-fearful way, that helps them to be assured that they really do belong to Jesus. It's a sign to them of their salvation. And that salvation is from God. And then second, we see in this section that this suffering helps to unite them, not only to one another, which it does, but also to others who are suffering. They have the joy, we see here in this passage, of deeper unity with Paul, who they loved. They are now suffering in the same way that he is. And this is an encouragement to them, because they loved Paul, and it's an encouragement to Paul. When we suffer in some way, it is so helpful, right, to be together with others who can understand what we are going through and truly sympathize with us. I've mentioned multiple times uh, from the pulpit things I've dealt with over the years, things like anxiety and other things like that. And I'm always encouraged when people tell me that that they're in this struggle with me, not because I'm excited that they're suffering too, but because I feel less alone and more encouraged and more understood. And that's true for for whatever suffering we have to deal with. Our ultimate enemy, Satan, he, he would love for us in our suffering to feel like we're alone and that no one else is dealing with what we are dealing with. But when we find others suffering in the same way, we feel less alone feel more understood, and these are precious gifts. And especially when that suffering is for following Christ. What a gift it must have been to Paul to see those Philippians suffering well, even as he suffered. And what a gift for the Philippians to see the joy and confidence of Paul that he displays as he writes this letter, even while he is in chains. And of course, this unity that the Philippians experience with Paul is a picture of something even greater. It's a picture of their unity with Jesus. Their suffering, Paul says, is for the sake of Jesus. They're suffering because they have chosen to follow him. The one who suffered so greatly for those that he loved. No one suffered more than Jesus. As Paul and the Philippians dealt with the Roman Empire, so did Jesus. Suffering at the hands of that empire. And also suffering at the hands of his fellow Israelites who wanted to kill him. And suffering and dying because of our sin. And Jesus suffered and died on a Roman cross. And while our suffering is certainly different than the suffering of Jesus, our suffering for him does help us to understand our unity with him. And as we see this suffering, we return again and again to the larger context, the sweep of human history. Why can the Philippians remain calm and confident in the midst of opposition? Why was Paul able to remain calm and confident? in the midst of opposition. And why can we remain calm and confident in the midst of opposition? Because we are united with Jesus, the one who is Lord over all things, the one who gave himself for us, the one whose suffering was followed by the triumph of the resurrection, showing that, that death and his opponents would not have the final word. And the one who will have the final word when he returns to make all things new removing all of his and our opposition, removing our sin and ending all of our suffering. Earlier we talked about church history and the ways that the church has sometimes responded well, sometimes not as well to opposition. The early church was certainly not perfect. We know this from Paul's letters. We know this from many church historians. But there is so much evidence, if we go back to those first few centuries, of God's grace at work in their midst especially in the midst of suffering and opposition. We mentioned Polycarp earlier. He was one of many Christians who suffered well in those first few centuries. There's a book I've recommended a couple times called Bullies and Saints by John Dixon. It's it's the best church history book I think I've ever read. And he describes the early church in this way. He says, For the first three centuries, Christians seemed like good losers. (laughs) They believed... They had already received the greatest reward, God's love through Christ's death and resurrection. And they were sure that his story of suffering, followed by vindication, was also theirs. They would win. They had won, even when they lost. All that was required of them as they waited for God's kingdom was prayer, service, persuasion, and endurance of hardship. Jesus had given them a beautiful tune and they were going to sing along. It is such a beautiful tune that we sing with one another and with all those who confess faith in Jesus Christ, together with all those throughout history and throughout the world, together with all those who even today are experiencing great persecution for their faith, and together with one another, real flesh and blood people that God has brought together to walk through this life in unity around him. And that's one of the things we remember and celebrate here at this table, the Lord's table.